Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross, and we got a good one, folks. Later on, I bring on John Craig, the director of Performance Plus Tennis and a USPTA elite professional, to talk about how Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic improved their serves throughout their careers. Also later on, I'll tell you about the one thing that people aren't talking about that could absolutely decimate the U.S. Open field in late August. But I got to start with Dominic Team, who has been the most active player uh, since the ATP and the WTA shut down. But he's also flat out dominated with a record of 25-3. and Last week, he won two titles. Yes, two titles in one week, one on hard court, one on grass. Both would be considered the bet one aces exhibition. And while it's natural to hesitate to take a lot away uh, from exhibition results, it's impossible not to notice how well Dominic Team is doing. Uh, the grass title bet one aces tournament, the final he won, was over Matteo Berrettini. That's Team's worst surface against a guy who put together an 11-2 record on grass last year and won Stuttgart. A great win for, for Domi there. And uh, that match I wasn't able to watch, but today I watched him take on Yannick Sinner on a hard court in a Berlin airport hangar. You, you heard me right. That was the setting, a airport hangar in Berlin. And it might have been the best I've ever seen him play. Seriously. It was just... It was just clinical. There was very little you could possibly critique about Dominic Team's performance um, against Yannick Sinner. Uh, one thing that's sticking out is he's become very comfortable flattening out his serve. Throughout his career, he's always had tremendous racket acceleration on his serve, but normally that's been deployed by way of the kick serve. And he's always had one of the best kick serves, the most powerful kick serves on tour. But the more spin you put on the ball... You're just taking away miles per hour. That's that's a fact of life. You can't get away from that. The flatter you hit it, the harder you're going to be able to hit the ball. And it seems like he's finally really unleashed the racket head acceleration that he's always had. And he's learned how to hit a way better slice serve and a way better flat serve. So the serve looks great. The forehand continues to be immaculate. Against Yannick Sinner, who has a tremendous two-handed backhand with lots of power, I think it was important for for Dominic to disrupt his rhythm on that side and to not get into backhand to backhand, you know, cross court slugfests with uh, with Sinner's two hander, and he did that by way of the backhand slice, which 
has has long been a shot that Dominic Team has continued to use with more and more regularity. Uh, but only now am I seeing that as a consistent shot that you know really yields the results that he's looking for with uh, you know as often as he'd like. The backhand down the line was connecting, and for someone who packs you know as big a punch as as Dominic Team does, and the forehand has always been there. And I mentioned how big he's serving. You know, to see a guy with that much power move around the court as well as he is. It's it's flat out scary. He is doing crazy, crazy things. Just look at the the last the last two points. I mean, he had a bomb of a serve, and you know what? I'll I'll put it up right now. I'll put it up because I I have the tweets. The the serve plus one here. Sinner hits a great return, and Dominic Team just half volleys it. Forehand winner looked like that forehand was probably in the nineties. Um, and then on match point, just ropes a backhand down the line. Again, serve plus one. The only chance that Yannick Sinner had was to try to get ahead in the rallies because once Sinner got on the wrong side of Dominic Team's power, he was not agile enough or athletic enough to recover. And that was really, really clear. It jumped off the court. And by the way, Sinner didn't play bad. I continue to be really impressed with Yannick Sinner. His ball striking at at 18 years of age is better than I've seen in a really, really long time from anyone. And he's got a bright future. But if there's anywhere he lags behind, it's athletically. So if team got ahead in points, Sinner really never had a chance. With that being said, I feel like the way Dominic team is playing right now, that is going to be the case against the majority of opponents. What will be the case? You need to get ahead in the rally or you're going to be in trouble. You cannot get on the wrong side of Dominic Team's power. Very similar to, you know, if you're playing your modern day Rafael Nadal with uh, how brutal his attacking tennis uh, currently stands. You, you really can't fall behind. You're never going to get back in it unless you are exceptional defensively. And Dominic Team is now at that level where his consistency has reached a point where if you fall behind in a rally, you're probably not going to dig out of it. Yeah, the power's the power's always been there, but the consistency hasn't. Now the consistency is there. You're probably not going to dig back. You better get ahead in the point. And when Team had a great kick serve and not a very good return, that was possible. You could win that serve return battle. You could get ahead in points. And man, that's just getting harder. And as Dominic Team's serve gets better and better, it's going to become increasingly hard to not be on the wrong side of Dominic Team's power. So I'm going to leave it at that. It's impossible. Impossible. I know it's an exhibition. You can't not notice how well Dominic Team has been playing throughout this pause. You can't. Will he be playing... In the U.S. Open, well, he's from Europe, and more and more, it's looking like there might be a major hurdle and possibly a major red flag for the U.S. Open uh, because of the European Union's travel ban. On Thursday, the EU extended its travel ban um, against, I don't want to use the word against, uh I don't know, extended its United States travel ban for at least another two weeks. 
So um, if you're going to travel from the United States to Europe in any capacity, you have to quarantine. Of course, that is going to be a problem for any European player. And sure enough, when Yannick Sinner was asked after his match with Dominic Team if he'd be playing the U.S. Open, he simply gave the answer that you'd have to expect he'd give, which is... I need to see what the quarantine rules are because obviously I can't go to the United States if it's going to cost me two weeks of quarantining. Well, it would be easy for me to look at the calendar and say, well, it's only July 19th. It's over a full month until it's U.S. Open time. That's plenty of time for the travel ban to be lifted. But the reality is the Cases in the United States are just not going in the right direction. Just two days ago, the U.S. set another daily record for coronavirus cases with over 77,000. So until that starts to go in another direction, obviously there will not be any lifting of that travel ban. The only question is if possibly the EU will exempt athletes as the U.S. has done because the United States has also issued travel bans against Europe and um they have offered an exemption for any athlete uh, coming into the United States. So will the EU provide that exemption? Will the travel ban be lifted? One thing's for sure, that's probably the number one thing that we need to be paying attention to right now. Because if that travel ban is not lifted and athletes are not exempt, as I said at the top, the U.S. open field is going to be decimated and it would be a devastating blow. So that's something to keep an eye on. With that being said, I think uh, we should draw attention to the fact that New York is the only major state in the United States that has this virus under control. And naturally, when the U.S. Open announced about a month ago, people reacted and said, anywhere but New York. Well, this just goes to show you how quickly things can change. And by the way, this just goes to show you how uh, this is a behavioral issue and the virus responds to how people behave. Well, New York, which was really bad, the epicenter of the entire pandemic at a certain point, um, they there was a shift in behavior and measures were put in place and compliance was was comparatively high. And again, now it is the state the only state where the curve is flat or going down. This weekend, there were 722 people in New York State hospitals with COVID, the lowest number since March 18th. Things so far are good in New York. But just as things were okay everywhere else and got really bad and vice versa for New York, the same thing can happen a month from now. The tour does not resume in the United States, you know, for another couple weeks now. Things can change really, really fast. This goes to show you that. But I do think it's important to note that we were in a position saying anywhere but New York. Well, now it's pretty much, well, thank God it's New York. Because California is going up and up and up. Texas, Florida. Same deal. Look at the graphs. New York in the top left. The main part of today's episode is a conversation with John Craig. He's the director at Performance Plus Tennis. 
And uh, I said something in a video that uh, he didn't agree with. He commented on it. I told him to email me. And we had a really good dialogue. John Craig is uh, someone who's been coaching nearly 40 years. Uh, I have a lot of respect for him. And whenever I talk technique, I almost uh, put a disclaimer on it that I'm not a coach. You see, coaches, one of the things that they are really good at is uh, they understand how to use language to portray exactly the, the correct thing when it comes to technique. And uh, I was breaking down Grigor Dimitrov's new service technique and basically said, well, um, he's bringing his arms, his tossing arm and his racket arm up together. Well, there's a connotation there and I shouldn't have said it like that because turns out, you know, for a long time, the traditional way to teach serves was that um, when you toss the ball, your arm should be in the trophy position and that would be up together. Okay. So you finish, you know, you finish at the same time. And I even said that at the highest, that both hands reach the highest point at the same time. Shouldn't have said that John, um, recognized that. And we, we talked about it because it's funny when it comes to my own serve, if you would have asked me, I would have said that I bring both my arms up together, but then I, I looked at a picture, the tossing arm leads, the tossing arm leads. And, and that is still the case for Dimitrov. I shouldn't say that you bring your arms up together because what you're, what you're really going for, if you want the proper balance, the proper fluidity is a slight lag where your tossing arm is ahead of your racket arm, even if they might be moving at the same speed. And uh, so John and I were talking about that. We decided, you know what? Let's get together. Let's jump on a Zoom. Let's talk about the evolution of Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic's serves. Too much improved shots. So uh, it was a long conversation. I chopped it up for your viewing convenience. So uh, what you're about to watch is kind of John Craig and I uh, going back and forth and talking about service technique. Um, hope you enjoy and I'll see you on the other side. It's always good. Um, I always enjoy conversations with people like you who have a great eye for technique. And uh, we were talking kind of organically about, about Grigor Dimitrov and the changes he's made. And uh, we decided for, for a while that, that we wanted to do this and take a look at Djokovic and Nadal. It's been so important in both of their careers that their serves have continued to improve with age. So uh, I'm really looking forward to doing a deep dive into that. But first, I, I got to ask you. So the serve builder—it's a fantastic nickname. I need to know how it how it started. Who came up with it? Well, I, you know, I think that uh, some of my students in the area were calling me like, "Wow, you're really good at building the serve," and it kind of just suddenly hit me like, "Wow, uh, the serve builder." And then I used that tagline to sort of create my my tagline for my business as the game builder. So or build your game. So uh, you know, I I feel as though my niche in tennis is to help tennis players understand how to build their skills. So it just kind of evolved uh, through time. Yeah. You can check out information about um, Performance Plus Tennis in the description. Uh, John, let's, let's get to uh, Novak first, okay? Because 2011, he has a big transformation. He's playing better tennis, wins the Davis Cup at the end of 2010, but starting, um, starting really at the Australian Open in 2011, Novak Djokovic is a different player. And 
A lot of people are talking about his gluten-free diet and his improved uh, mental focus and his fitness. But uh, sometimes lost in that is the fact that his serve looked a whole lot better. Absolutely. You know, if we look, if we look at the years prior to that, his serve was letting him down in big moments. We can easily recall, um, you know, important moments in the U.S. Open when he would double fault and he didn't have confidence in his serve under pressure and it would cave. So there was a couple of things going on that definitely needed to be adjusted. And, you know, I think his team realized that he needed to improve his serve if he was going to really contend for the big titles and, and really ultimately be a challenge to Federer and Nadal. So went, they went to work on it and made some key adjustments that obviously have proven to be amazing for his career. So, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's at the top of the leaderboards now um, by most metrics when it comes to holding serve. In 2010, just to kind of put a number on it, Djokovic served 304 aces, 282 double faults. Those yeah. numbers should not be that close together. You should have a lot more aces uh, than double faults. And then when it comes to Nadal, it, it's really been a, a constant tinkering with his serve. And there's been kind of ups and downs and ups and downs. But, at, you know, the, in the larger picture, it's trended up. And in 2019, he had his career best ace rate and his career best holds rate. And uh, so as Nadal's movement has, uh, has declined and He's, uh, he doesn't really want to play the same kind of defending and grinding tennis. His serve has been probably the number one tool that's enabled him to change his game. Yeah, I think that's huge. And, uh, you know, when he came out of the tour, his serve was certainly not a weapon at all. In fact, it was probably a glaring weakness. And they, Tony and, his, you know, the team knew that, again, if, if Rafa was going to contend and be an all-time great, he was going to have to serve better or players were just going to take advantage of his serve. So they went to work and made some critical adjustments and it has been over time and he has tinkered with it. And probably there's probably three or four occasions where we can see you know, changes that have occurred. And ultimately it has definitely improved and it's not a weakness that the players can, can pick on, which has been great. So. All right. So we're looking at this first image of Novak and John, I'm just going to guess by, by looking at this, this is, this is old Novak. Yeah, absolutely. This, I think this image is what most tennis players remember his serve to look like. Uh, he's got an open racket face and his racket drop, and his hand is pretty far extended away from his body. And I think as we remember this, this motion, it looked like it was going to hurt his shoulder, and it probably would have. Uh, it really didn't put him in a position where he had good leverage up into the ball, and it was pretty awkward. So he did make a huge adjustment and change in, in this area in his serve. Uh, which was critical. And it, to me, it's one of the two, one of two big changes that he made. Yeah. On this, on this racket drop, this is a, this is a moment in time where I'd say most pros, the, the racket's a little bit closer to the back and the, and the butt. It's a deeper, almost a deeper uh, tricep stretch, not, not in a literal sense, but it seems like the racket position, it's very far away from the body. Yeah, and with the hand so far away, it would be difficult to get the racket drop that we we're seeking, um, and it put a lot of strain on his shoulder. So there was a there was a lot of excessive strain there. Um, just think about you know picking up a, a a weight close to your body versus you know stretching your hand out away from your body, and it just didn't put him in a position where he had you know could generate the power. Uh, but perhaps just as importantly is is it was leading him into an area where he could have really had a shoulder injury that could have ended his career. 
So okay. again, in this one, uh, which is again, another early image, he's playing with Wilson racket, so we know it was quite a while ago. Hmm. You can see that the racket is, is not entered into the drop yet, but you can see it's going to drop with an open face. So in that, that arm, the hand from this point, he looks like he's in pretty good shape as far as the, the you know, elbow bend and the L shape. But from here, what, it, what happened is the racket would actually fall away and his hand would actually fall away. And it would, it would produce a limited swing in terms of racket drop and a weaker movement into the ball. So we, we can see here that his racket is starting to wanna to open up and it's gonna be a weakness that's gonna show up later in his serve. So this, this is after the change. And there's, there's really two phases to the change in his serve. But here we can see that his racket is in a much better position. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to fall more naturally. It's not going to look like he's trying to place or create a, uh, a racket drop, but it's going to fall naturally. And it's, and it's in a much stronger position to come up to, on edge to the ball, which is, gonna, which is really going to improve his, his serve dynamics, the speed, the spin, everything. So this is, this is the adjustment he made. Prior to this time, in this position, his racket face would be turned open and the strings that are gonna contact the ball would be facing the sky and his hand would be further away from his, his shoulder. Racket position is a lot better, um, but at this point in his, his adjustments, uh, he hadn't figured out his rhythm yet. Fluidity, timing, certainly important in any serve. And uh, I would think when, when you're in Novak's position and you're making all these technical changes because you have flaws, you're, you're more susceptible or it takes you more time to really hone in on that timing and fluidity. Yeah. So I think the first thing they did is they, they adjusted his, his swing and he worked very hard on that swing in, the, in his offseason to, to make that adjustment. And then they had to get the rhythm right, which was the next, really the next phase. You can see in this image that there's no question that his feet have reached the, the peak and yet he's, he's not a contact. So this image clearly illustrates that he is going to be descending physically while he's making contact. So in this image, he's still out of sync. So yeah. in other words, given where, where he's at with his uh, explosion from his legs off the court, he should be pretty close to making contact with the ball right about now. And he's just not there. Yeah. He's, he's at the, he's at the peak of his movement or very close to it. And yet he's not, his racket's, not in sync with his, his legs and his swing are not in sync with each other. So he's going to most likely be descending on contact in this particular serve, which, which was really characteristic of his serve in the early days. Yeah, if you were to draw a line, um, a, a vertical line that would show, you know, where Novak's weight is, it would really be heavily on that front leg. Where do you think it should be? Well, at this point in time, if we're going to consider this a trophy position because the racket hasn't entered the drop, mm -hmm. I would like to see, I'd like to see the legs uh, carrying the weight neutral. So both so legs dead are center. responsible. Yeah. So he needs to be more neutral in his trophy position so that he can make a more balanced, more coordinated, and better timed movement up into the contact point. Well, in this image, you can see that this is, this is kind of leading to the big thing that I, I really want the, our viewers to take away is that in this image, we see that he's really leading with his left hand. And leading with the left hand into the toss and, and lagging with the tossing arm is counterintuitive to traditional instruction, which is always down together, up together. But in reality, most of the best servers in the world don't do that. They're leading with the tossing arm and they're lagging with the, with the swinging arm 
so that they can really release the ball with more control and they can enter into a trophy position that is going to have a stronger angle with the shoulders, a steeper angle, and a much better balance to make a play into the ball. So this is really another big change he made where he was, look where his racket is now. And you can see that he's leading with that left hand, which is really big. And I think earlier in his career, his elbow would not have been as bent. The racket would have been further away from his body. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't have really been in that 90 degree angle with his racket arm. Yeah, there was a little bit, it was a little bit more. Well, what would happen is if, if you, if you're leaning forward, then naturally there's going to have to be a counterbalance. So the right arm would reach back because it's trying to hold him from falling. So a lot of things happen um, uh, involuntarily just because intuitively we need to keep balance. So the body does things it needs to do to sort of feel like it stays in control, but it doesn't always put you in the position where you can get the best result. And this is pre-trophy position slightly, but if we were to draw a line of where Djokovic's balance is, it would be right down the middle exactly where, uh, where you suggested it should be at this right. point in the surf. Mm -hmm. And you can see in this image again, a little bit bigger, more clarity, the weight is clearly on the back foot. And this, this is really important because the weight needs to be stable slightly on the back foot to counterbalance the energy that he's using with his left arm to raise the ball. So most servers are going to be a little bit favoring the back leg during the tossing phase before the ball exits the hand, and then they'll shift into a neutral position to get into the trophy position. But this is really a great position that most of our viewers should be trying to emulate when they're serving. So this is a, an image of Rafa in his early days of serving. When he, was, when he was playing as a junior and into his early days as a professional, his serve was really uh, out of sync. And, and I don't really think that he, he was just serving. He wasn't really, really sure what he was trying to do. So he had this very distinctive down together, up together movement. And so his hands were literally at the same height, a little bit different than Chris Everett, that image, but conceptually the same. And it just weakened his serve. He really didn't get a good angle in his shoulders. He didn't get a good leg drive. And it really was a, was a weak movement. Um, so he's, he's made tremendous progress since then, obviously, but this is a good image of what he was like in his early couple, probably first four or five years on the tour. This traditional instruction, which is even still around today, is to serve down together, up together. You, you both arms compete above your head and don't really enable you to get into the, the modern serve classic trophy position where you can really generate power and get height on your serve, everything. So. We want to really demystify this down together, up together movement. And, um, you know, to be clear, the arms actually do move at a similar speed, but because the tossing arm rises first, it has the appearance of, of, of a strong delay. But in reality, for most players like Roger Federer, both hands move away from each other at the same speed, but his tossing arm rises first and then his racket, you know, sweeps back and then rises. There is a variance there where some players have a, a heavier delay, a more slight delay, uh, but, but generally we, we will see with the best serves that the tossing arm is going to, uh, to lead, and that's the point that you're trying to hammer home. Right, and, and it's, they're subtle things, and they're really, it really boils down, I think it's important that the viewers understand that there's a difference between technique and style. And some of this is just style oriented and, and nothing is right or wrong. It's just finding what works best for you. If a player is really distinctly on their back foot, like Serena is, for example, she can stall the racket 
um, while her tossing arm is rising because she's stable, more stable. And, but for other players, they'll want the two arms to move in such a way that it neutralizes the movement and doesn't cause a shift. So it, they're just subtle things. I think it's why important that, that, that uh, you know, you get out with a video camera and you look at yourself and you, and you discover what works best for you. So here we have Rafa in a completely different type of a position at the, at, after he's released the ball. The racket is still down. And so he, this is where in his serve he made his first adjustment, realizing he wanted to lead with his tossing arm and lag with his, with his left hand or his left arm, which was really going to give him a much more natural fluid swing, much more efficient. What he is doing here, which he's tinkered with, I think, is the timing of his legs. And so he's deep into his legs, and the ball is barely out of his hand in terms of the interval of time. And I think that he's, he's tinkered with this quite a bit in recent years to figure out how to time his leg drive so that he could get more height and more, and more performance out of his serve. Uh, for most players, this is probably going to be a, an awkward position to be in. Yeah, I, I covered this at the beginning of the uh, Australian Open in 2019. It just, it seemed like at this point in time, there was an uncomfortable amount of loading on the legs for an extended period of time throughout his motion. And it it looks a lot better now that he's gotten rid of that. So I think in this image, we can see he is doing a better job with his legs at the point of release. He has not gone into this extreme bend. And uh, I think it's going to help his ball placement and it's going to help him get into a better rhythm as well. If your legs are going down, like in the previous image, while your tossing arm is going up, just try that and see how that weakens the movement and makes it difficult. Not only is it a rhythm issue, but it's also just a, a simple control issue as well. So he, he was able to make this adjustment and it, and it turns out that it's been a, it was very good for his, his serving rhythm and his timing. We know that that Novak made changes in his in his swing. Uh, certainly, in in the second half of his swing, where he went into his racket drop, and that was really important. Uh, we know that Rafa made changes in his take back, um, and that helped him tremendously. I would say that overall, understanding and and leading with a with the tossing hand, and understanding the balance they want to get into and the load they want to get into really enabled them to make the big difference in the performances of their serve, ultimately. Uh, with Novak, it was obviously his service motion, and it was also the timing of his leg drive. So, and that really was partly the way he entered into the serve. He was really off balance, and then he really didn't understand how to sync up his legs with his swing. So he had, he had two problems going on, and so did Rafa, but they were just a little bit different technically and in style. Uh, in Rafa's case, he, he had both arms rising up. It looked like he was, you know, calling out field goal, touchdown, whatever. But he, and he really wasn't able to get into a good, strong trophy position. And then he also realized that his leg drive was not, was not uh, really helping his serve the way it could. So he was able to make that adjustment in the rhythm and timing of the leg drive with the swing. So both players are still make, looking to make strides. I think both uh, Djokovic and Nadal had really some of their best serving years ever in their career in 2019. And they were both continuing that through 2020, especially Djokovic, extra miles per hour on the second serve. Nadal on pace for his career best ace rate once again. 
where do you see both players serves going? Because clearly they're, they're still looking to make leaps. They're never satisfied. Yeah. And I, I think that technically, I think they're really close it is probably, we're not going to see much change technically. Um, what I think we're going to see is improvement in accuracy. Not that they're not accurate, but I think that there's always improvement that can be made there. Um, and I think it's, it's a more, it becomes more of a tactical thing. But I would actually say that I think that Novak and Rafa are both very good tactical servers. You know, Rafa will very rarely serve a second serve down the middle in the ad court until he, he knows Roger's leaning to his left, anticipating a slice, and then he'll pop it down the middle. And Novak is the same way. Novak, he's very good at changing his serve directionally, um, and it, it throws the players off. So I think as they improve their accuracy, and, and I, I think that's really the key thing at this point in time is how, can they hit the spots when they want to hit the spots? Djokovic says, what's oh, that? go ahead, go ahead. But I think ultimately, and I think this is so important for players to understand, is that in order to, to, to be confident under pressure, you have to believe in what you're doing and you have to know why you do what you do. There has to be some technical thing or two that makes sense to you that gives you the underlying confidence to play under pressure. Otherwise you're, you're, you're more than likely going to falter under pressure and get nervous because you're just guessing and you don't want to be guessing. I haven't, I haven't, I can't really think of a time in uh, at least recently where Djokovic's serve has, has really gone off the rails. It's been incredibly consistent. And, and you mentioned placement. I do have some, some stats on this because uh, Tennis Australia Game Insights Group did a, a bit of a Hawkeye study on Djokovic at the Australian Open. And from 2008 to 2010, 13% of his first serves were, were within six inches of the line. From 2014 to 2016, that number, remember, 13% jumped up to 17%. So uh, a really significant jump there in how often Djokovic is hitting the ball close to the line, he has become a great spot server. And in Nadal's case, I really think that he's found new direction uh, with, with his serve placement. And now it, it used to be that he would just kind of slice it out wide all the time, righty backhand, righty backhand. And now he, he still goes to that for the most part, but he knows that when he goes the other way, when he hits it out wide on the deuce side or down the tee on the ad side, that he can flatten it out, use it as a surprise tactic. And if you look at his numbers, when he goes the other way to the righty forehand, he actually wins a higher percentage of points and gets a higher percentage of aces because he gets people leaning that way. So I think both have really honed in on their serving tactics as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. And we have to keep in mind that in Rafa's case, he's serving to get a forehand. He, you know, and Mm -hmm. I think statistically, you know, he probably hits a forehand after his serve more than 80% of the time. So that's, you know, he's looking to do that because he wants to, he wants wants to dictate with that first ball. So everything is about, uh, you know, changing patterns, hitting the spots and looking for that ball that he can, he can take charge with from the start. Serve plus one. All right, John, thanks so much for doing this. This is great. I think people are really going to enjoy this. That's our show. I hope you got a lot out of that last segment. Leave a thumbs up and a comment if you did. And also, it's a huge help. If you leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, the link 
to the podcast page is in the description. There's also my new YouTube channel called Three. If you haven't heard, I'm starting a new show about the big three with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. I'm posting the first three episodes on this channel. You can go to the archives to check those out. Uh, I do appreciate if you would. Uh, Mailbag coming up this Friday. Stay tuned for that. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.